Welcome to the Lion's Den, brought to you by the Bluebird. This week, regular hosts Nathan Johns and Charlotte Cutter were fortunate enough to be asked by the Cambridge Union to host a sporting discussion for them. The event centred on being a professional sports person at the University of Cambridge. Guests included James Cracknell, a two-time Olympic gold medalist for Team GB Rowing, James Horwell, a former Australian rugby captain, and Flip van der Merwe, who played the same sport for South Africa. The event was introduced by the union's executive officer, James Vitali. Here's how they got on. We're absolutely delighted uh, that we've been able to put this discussion together. It promises to offer some fascinating insights into sports at Cambridge University. We live in a world of professional sport, where once upon a time, gifted and talented athletes would go to university to pursue their sporting endeavours as students. Very frequently now, they're picked up at an exceptionally early age and put on a fast track towards practising their respective sports as vocations. But that isn't always the case. And moreover, sports men and women from across the world continue to come to Cambridge University to study uh, and to earn a coveted blue in the various varsity fixtures. Why that is, and what going back to study as a professional sports person is like, is the focus of tonight's event. I'm delighted that tonight's panel will be chaired by our friends from the Bluebird, Cambridge's key sports publication. Charlotte Cutter is a second year geographer and Nathan Johns is currently studying for an MPhil in classics. They have recently interviewed Louise Shanahan, who is a PhD student at Trinity and an Irish middle distance runner, and also Michael Atherton, former England cricket captain, but far more importantly, the former skipper of the Light Blues. I do urge you to go across um, to their website and various social media channels uh, and check out their new podcasts. They're really excellent. Uh, without any, any further ado, uh, I will pass you on to Charlotte and Nathan to introduce our excellent panellists. Thank you so much, James. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you three joining us this evening. Um, and I'll get on to introducing you before we get into the questions. So we have with us this evening, Flip van der Merwe. Um, Flip is a retired professional rugby player. He's appeared 36 times for the South African Springboks between 2015, between 2010 and 2015. He is currently studying for an executive MBA at the Judge Business School. Um, we also have with us James Knopf, who is a two-time Olympic rower. In 2019, he became the oldest competitor and also the oldest winner for Cambridge in the boat race against Oxford. He studied for an MPhil in human evolution between 2018 and 2019. Finally, we have James Horwell, who is also um, a professional rugby player, known as Kev. He was the captain of Australia between 2011 and 2013 and won 66 international caps between 2007 and 2016. He is currently also studying for an, an executive MBA at the Judge Business School. Um, gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have you with us this evening. Thank you so much for joining. <laughs> um, and it goes without saying it's a shame that um, we can't have you, we can't all be in the chamber. Um, it's definitely something that's a real sense of occasion. It's a pretty special place. Um, where some pretty historic conversations and debates have been had. Um, sadly, we're all in our rooms um, on Zoom. So um, I'm going to start off just by trying to recreate some of the um, kind of atmosphere and the emotion. Um, have you guys chatting about your first experience playing uh, your top level sport at the highest level representing your country, um, which is pretty impressive. Um, so James, tell me, um, James Cracknell, there's a lot of Jameses here this evening, um, tell me about the first time you rode for Great Britain. Um, what was that like as an experience? Uh, well, result-wise, it wasn't so great, but um, I just raced the, um, so I, just, I won the under-18 World Championships the year before, and then I went straight into the senior team, and going from racing people your own age to suddenly you're racing guys that won at the Olympics and the World Championships and uh, uh, you're not, although you're 18, you're not fully grown then. And uh, and it's a realisation between doing something your age group and then, right, this is this is what it's like. And I I, I made the choice when I, when I left school, 
to go and train at the rowing club where this guy called Steve Redgrave trained, who was, he was Britain's best rower, won lots of Olympic gold medals at that point. And I figured if I could beat him one day a month and then one day a week and then every day, then I'd have a good chance of getting there. And so it was, I guess it was strange going into a world championships the previous year of being right, it was first or nothing. And then your aims had gone to make the final, which you know, is not, you know, not something to aspire to in some ways, but it's, it, it then you know, the realization of where I had to go, making the team is one thing, but no one wants to get, as the guys are saying, no one wants to get there just for the kit. You want to get there to, to win as well. And so it, it was, uh, yeah. Chastening is probably what I'd say, rather than loads of fun. Um, and Flip, um, am I right in saying uh, you got your first cap um, in 2010 against France? What was that like as an experience, getting the jersey for the first time? Exactly. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, yeah, it, it, it's definitely an experience. And I, I think, uh, like both Jameses will tell you as well, it's experience you will never, ever uh, forget. And and forever want to live in your in your life again um it it was kind of different as i, I as i was seen as a, a late bloomer in in rugby i wasn't a typical 18 19 year old you know strutting it off and becoming a star um and and i think you know that that experience made it a little bit different it makes that i appreciate it so much more it sort of happened very fast i i signed a, a, a first professional contract in 2009 and 2010 i was i was i was a, a international player um uh, especially playing it in in cape town where my old man played a lot of rugby it was it was a very sentimental sentimental feeling and um one one i always keep with me yeah Classic, classic little Zoom faux pas there. Um, and lastly, Kev, um, on to you. Um, you earn your, you know, your first Wallabies jersey um, against Fiji in 2007, if I'm correct. Um, how did that set up the rest of your career in terms of a real, a real high? Yeah, look, I think it's um, obviously representing your country is sort of the peak of where you can get to it as a, as a rugby player. And uh, it's sort of, I guess... You know, ratifies all the hard work that you put in to get there but you know as James touched on it sort of gives you a taste to, to want you want more of it you know I, I didn't want to be the one that had played one test and and that was it you know you got the jersey and then you, you you can put that against your name it's about so it sort of gave me the the taste to want to kick on and I was lucky enough to play a, a, you know, a lot more times from a country but it was certainly a very proud moment and, and particularly for the the people that help you get there you know my parents you know uh my family have been very supportive and you know sacrificed a lot to allow me to pursue what was ultimately my my dream was to to play rugby for your country so it, you know i think the, the while the emotion's important for you i think it's as important for the people that have helped you uh helped you get there and that was the that was the nice part for me Well, we are here, after all, to talk about professional sport and its relationship to Cambridge, of course. So um, I'll start with you, uh, James Cracknell, because um, obviously the three of you are coming at looking at Cambridge from very different perspectives, obviously coming from all over the world and from uh, two different sporting backgrounds. What was you, James Cracknell, what was your perception of Cambridge before you came here as a student uh, with the boat race and, and, being, and being someone from Britain? I'm assuming it you were, as, and definitely as a rower as well, I'm assuming that the tradition behind Cambridge rowing was something that you were very much aware of before you came here. Yeah, uh, it definitely, you know, it's the way, the way rowing is. Um, rowing was on telly, you know, once a year, and that was the boat race, or once every four years, and that was the Olympics. That was the only time it was on. And so when you start rowing at what, 13, 14, the chance of your sport on telly is is the boat race. Um, not that it made much sense, but you're kind of aware of it. And then I, if I'd been, had the grades to get into the, to Oxford or Cambridge when I left school, I think I probably would have, would have gone there if I could have, just because, you know, uh, no, the other universities didn't really have the, the strong road program for you to do it and then be able to step on internationally but then once 
I suppose your perception of the race changes when you're in when you're in the sort of international setup that it actually, even though you're the same age as the guys doing it, your your objective is uh, bow races in April, your world championships are in August, September. So you, it um, it's it's just very different. It was a a kind of add on to the calendar rather than, um, I guess, an aspiration. So I think it, it kind of from being appealing when I was at school it went to something else that happened when I was competing internationally I get I don't know whether um Philip or James will, will say the same about the varsity the varsity match but it's it wasn't until probably in the mid-90s when lots of internationals started going back and, and racing there a lot of German guys came over Americans and it's suddenly okay right it's, yeah, they used to give us a proper race yeah, it's interesting you say that because we I spoke to um, Tom Ransley who medaled in the men who gold medaled in the men's eight in Rio, and he said exactly the same thing that it was around the nineties that when the Germans came over that's when he remembered that the boat race really started getting its um, its international pull. So it's it's interesting you agree with him there. Um, so Flip, you came over from from France um, before obviously you you finished up with Clermont before you before you came over to do your degree. Um, I'm curious because at least you know James Horwell was based in Queens down in London, so he at least was in the UK. So I'm curious what the what the South African slash French viewpoint of of coming to Cambridge and um, playing sport and studying at Cambridge is. Yeah, um, I think the institution as such goes without saying that you know uh, I obviously knew about Cambridge. Um, uh, and much as, as James said, you know, it, it stays it stays a dream when you're at school. Um, it seems uh, um, when I went to school and at uni in South Africa, uh, Cambridge did seem very far away. Um, and we were I was lucky to have family friends that actually attended Cambridge, and and they kept that carrot in front of your nose. Uh, <laughs> um, I was also very lucky to to be able to 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 have an education before my my rugby career took off. Um, so I. I I knew it was something that was 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 that I was interested in. It's something that I wanted to continue, uh, and it always when I when I came to France in 2015, it always was a thing that I wanted to continue after rugby. Is uh, is is to pursue further education and 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 use education as that that springboard into into the corporate world or into the into the professional world. Um, and then, and then, as I as I started looking at uh, at different uh, schools to attend, you know, um, Cambridge just had, had, had so many positives going for it, um, and and definitely having having the Cambridge uh, Rugby Club there um, as a support system when you come in is, is definitely something that helps me helped me make a choice for Cambridge. You, you speak a lot about academics there, and um, I know I know Charlotte is keen to. To ask about academics in a moment but before she does James Horwell I quickly want to ask you about the sporting side of things um how much how aware of the varsity match were you before you came here and how much of how much of a pull was that to, was that structure and playing in a game like that to to going to Cambridge yeah look I, I was pretty aware probably from from early when I when I went to university similar to flip when I went to university uh straight out of school in, in Brisbane so the University of Queensland there was a lot of people that had a had a strong uh, link to, to Cambridge there between that rugby club and and, and that university and um, and Cambridge and a lot of uh, I guess alumni from guys that I'd played with or guys that were part of that rugby club had been and either played in a varsity match or attended either Cambridge or or the other place and and I think that was probably something that was um, that I knew about and probably planted the seed very early on and then as I you know went into my professional career I was lucky enough to play a couple of years with Dan Vickerman, who came over here and played um, an ex-Australian lock who played uh, in the varsity match for two years and captained Cambridge um, here at the university. And then finally to that, I, I played with Jamie Roberts, who's obviously the British and Irish Alliance and Welsh uh, centre at, um, at Harlequins. And he, you know, he when he arrived at Harlequins the same time I did, he um, he just finished his, his varsity match experience. So, you know, I, I guess throughout my uh, my professional career and and before it started, I knew about it and knew uh, the importance and the I guess the prestige it, it held uh, you know amongst the rugby community and still does uh, particularly back in Australia that's for sure. 
Um, yeah, Nathan touched on it a bit. Obviously, the the academic um, side is probably what people think of most when you talk about Cambridge. And I think it's very easy, um, particularly something like the boat race when it's on telly every year um, and this kind of incredible sense of sporting achievement is put on a pedestal um, for people to forget that they are at the end of the day students doing degrees at a university that prides itself on being very academically um, rigorous. And um, James Cracknell, how much of a pull was the kind of academic um, reputation of Cambridge when you were coming to do um, a degree uh, like MPhil in human evolution like you did? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a good question. I mean, it, in the way I approach it is, is similar to Flipper, but as actually I you know, came here for the course um, with the aim of it furthering the career work that I'm doing and in contrast to my undergraduate study which was my choice of university was proximity to where the rowing team was based and it involved basically you got three years to train and bluff your way through a course and that was you know and it, so if I look back at my undergraduate degree it was I kind of it was a it was, a, it was a, a way to support a career and I wasted the chance of actually having a degree that I would use in the future. Um, I'm not saying anything against geography, which is my original degree, but, um, I, you know, my knowledge of glaciers isn't, hasn't been that much use since. Um, but so it was actually going back and having, right, going to university, doing the course I wanted to do, and then um, alongside that doing doing the boat race and uh, there are there are also you know, a couple of big personal reasons you know, for doing it in that I um, had my sporting career and then I'd, I'd done a couple of sort of adventure endurance type documentaries for the BBC and Discovery Channel and I got knocked off a bike during one of those and um, had a really nasty accident I was in a, in a coma for a few weeks and uh, suffered a massive head injury and the perception of what I was able to do afterwards from, from other people, family, mates, and also my own self-confidence was, was really down. And actually, I was doubting myself. And yes, people were placing limits on me, but I was also placing on myself. And the work I was doing in public health and non-communicable disease, lifestyle disease, was actually the course was really going to add academic credibility to that. And then if... I could pass, you know, an MPhil at Cambridge and compete in the boat race. You know, I hadn't rowed for 15 years. I hadn't, you know, last time I was at university, there was no internet. So it was, I was really laying it all out there. And also the, you have the neurologists and everything saying, well, you won't be able to do this. And suddenly that the challenges became much more real. And then what you touched on then, the reality of being a student athlete in, in having your timetable of lectures and you, we used to train at six in the morning then and then lectures then train again at, in the afternoon and that's where the realization and the guys that say as well when you come from being a full-time athlete that we did at six o'clock in the morning till whatever eight and then you'll go to your lectures and i was used to coming off of the training session lounging around a bit getting changed back around the change room and then go and suddenly within five minutes everyone had gone and I was sat there going, what's happening here? What are we doing? Because <laughs> I there was something, you were, oh yeah, I've got to go to a lecture and have breakfast before. And we trained out in Ely, uh, so it's a half hour drive. First couple of times I missed the minibus because I was just busy lounging around upstairs and waiting for, I was sort of getting a meal ready for us. And then you realise, no, you've got to have made some food beforehand and eat it in the bus on the way home. The only reason I didn't miss the bus later on was that I was the only one old enough to drive the minibus out of all the athletes. So I, I had the keys at least. Oh, that's brilliant. Also, it's made my day that your first degree was in geography. I know, <laughs> I know, I know what to answer to all the colouring in jokes. I'll be like, well, James Cracknell did geography, so you know. I was a geography teacher as well before we kind of went full time into Olympic stuff. And I'll be out in, in London and um, where we could go to nightclubs, you'd be out at a club, and then someone comes and goes, um, hello, you used to teach me geography. 
And I was like, oh, great. First, they feel very old. What do you do now? Not jog free, you're shit. <laughs> Amazing. Um, going on with the academic theme a little bit, um, Flip, I know you touched on earlier about obviously doing the executive MBA and that really being a factor to how you wanted to kind of move your career and your business forward. How is it? How is it? I mean, it's probably a bit soon to say, but how do you feel like it's impacted and aided your career in the business world so far? Um, yeah, also very good question. I, I think um, the executive MBA in particular, you know, if to, to get how I made a choice on that is, you know, we are we are getting. I'm already 36 this year, you know, so it was a big decision about going going full on, you know, full on MBA um, as I. I touched a little bit on those transferable skills you know we we worked in teams and, and leadership and I had a undergrad in in, in finance and economics and you know, how do you how do you mix that whole ball and use it in, in business afterwards um, and the executive MBA you know was perfect in that sense that it helps me it helps me build build further on on those frameworks that that I can use afterwards and currently can use you know. <clears throat> excuse me um, where we where we are able to we have one week of class and then immediately you can apply it in, in your business um you know as we james will tell you as well we we just finished a a, a good good old slog of, of 12 hours of zoom sessions today you know and it's but it's very interesting and very tiring very challenging um and and coming coming to the judge you know it's exactly it's exactly the thing you wanted you didn't want to as, as James Cracknell said earlier, um, you don't want the same undergrad experience where because you were a sports star, you know, you, you were carried on feathers and, 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 and <laughs> they made sure that you, that you passed your exams. Um, we, we wrote this, the, the Thursday or the Friday, Thursday after the varsity match, Friday after the varsity match, we wrote a management practice exam at, at eight in the morning, <laughs> which was a, was was a, a, a very good experience and it's exactly you know that what you said um previously in rugby you were you were spoon fed <laughs> and you were you knew how easy easy life was and it was easy to moan about um you know things are not going right and you know my bed's uncomfortable i can't get a good night's sleep and then when you get out of the real world um and you see what what all the boys around you and, and and your new team and your new teammates have to go through you know you just have to have to pull up your socks and, and adapt to that yeah it's pretty you make it sound pretty intense and i mean to add a um another layer of intensity um to that james horwell um i'm correct you've got two young daughters don't you um and obviously, I think were you living, you weren't living in Cambridge, you were living in London and sort of commuting up and doing the sports and doing the executive MBA and being dad to two little girls. That must have been a next level challenge. <laughs> I, I got one little girl. I got one, another another baby on the way. So she, um, my wife's pregnant at the moment. But yeah, look, no, look, we, um, it, it certainly was a, a challenge in, in sort of, I think, Flip and, and James have both touched on it, that, you know, when you're a professional athlete, you do get spoon-fed and things are, are sorted for you. You know, you just, you almost get told where you need to be, when you need to be there, and you just need to almost show up. And I think, you know, from coming out of a professional environment, you have to be pretty organised. And, and I think the, the family element, you know, adds an extra mix to that, you know, having a young daughter and, and, and prioritizing them and making sure that they're okay and, and your wife's okay while also understanding your your study requirements and then also your your training uh, requirements when you know in the lead up to the varsity match so I think uh, it, it's just a you know it, it is a challenge and, and I think it, it is something different you know playing 15 years of professional sports where as I said you, you sort of spoon fed a little bit uh, in the way that you go about things it's um you know, it's about learning and, and it's certainly an experience that I've uh, I enjoyed. Um, and look, it's something that I think it'll add to, you know, hopefully benefit my, you know, my career moving forward. But it, I think it's a, it's a unique experience. And that's it, as James touched on, you know, it's a, it is a unique experience and, and you, you do respect, you know, the guys that you play with, particularly, you know, we, you know, in our rugby team, we had a lot of guys that, you know, doing, you know, doctors and, you know, astrophysicists and all these sort of, you know, amazing things 
that you wouldn't even ever be exposed to at a, at a rugby club or a, a professional rugby environment. And I, I think it's, um, it's quite special and quite unique is probably the best way to put the sort of the rugby club at the university or sport at the university is that the, you know, the, I guess the brain power of, of some of the guys that you play with is quite astronomical. Yeah, I mean, that James, sorry, James uh, points out something though, that was very interesting in that the, we used to have a half hour minibus drive back from the bow house every day. And conversations in there were unlike any, <laughs> some of the same, but they're unlike, many were unlike anything you'd have in, the, in a normal bus on the way back for a training venue. Yeah. Um, it was this in the Super Bowl was, was last weekend. And, um, I was driving the bus and uh, I was reading some stat about how much guacamole was going to be eaten on Super Sunday and it would fill the stadium um, you know, half full. If the whole Americans ate that much guacamole during the game, and, and someone goes, how many, how many tubs of guacamole is that? And then it went far down the bus. Okay, how do you work out the volume of a sphere? And it literally, it was rather than you know, in any other bus I've been in, then someone would guess some number. They said they'd worked out the volume. They'd worked out, basically someone had phoned their mum to work out if an avocado would float or sink to then work out how much weight would then be in the tubs. And, and I was like, okay, they're quite clever, this lot. This isn't what, and then weirdly, we went, we went to stop at a petrol station and I go, uh, you can you um, just shove some diesel in there? And it, he couldn't work out that to open the petrol can, you had to open the passenger's door. And uh, it took him five minutes. I just sat there watching him going, well, what is this? And, then, and I go, are you struggling there? And he, and he goes, I can't work out open it. And I go, what are you doing? He's got, I'm doing a PhD in engineering. And I was like, you're just so clever. That's really not that good. Yeah, I've, I've got a very similar story about someone asking me how to post a letter. Of one of my rugby players. I won't, I won't, I won't name names, but they uh, didn't know how to post a letter in any way, shape, or form. But uh, doing some, yeah, as you said, some ridiculous PhD in uh, you know astrophysics or whatever it is. So yeah, I'm, uh, I can, I can relate to that certainly. I think if anyone ever asks me, you know, what's it like actually, or you know, going to Cambridge, um, I bet everyone's really clever. I just want to give that kind of those anecdotes as an answer because um it's it is something else sometimes you do you, do, you become a bit numb to it after a while but um the, the other yeah. thing about, so james post saying uh, posting a letter there it's this the difference that, that i found was that it's your responsibility to be somewhere it's so easy not to go to lectures and to miss things rather than having been a full-time athlete when you're told to be there be take this with you you'll get picked up there. So I mean, you've got to find out when your lectures are, what you're doing, what you need. Um, and when I was a full-time athlete, we, I just, lot, our national funding came in um, during my time as being an athlete. So we were a professional, we had sort of subsistence grants and going from having a job and training to having no job that I, I missed actually not doing anything. And I remember I, thought I'd hit the real low when my my to-do list for that day was shave and post letter. That's excellent. I mean if you if you shaved and you post a letter at least you've left your house. Um, <laughs> at least you've left your room which was more more that I can say about my room in college the past four days. Um, <laughs> so James Cracknell back onto your sort of um, that sort of student experience that you had and that dynamic in the training squad in the rowing club um there was a lot of the media coverage about the boat race when you were partaking like you google you know james cracknell boat race and it would come up with oh he's the oldest competitor ever um and it was it was very focused on your age um did you find that a little bit annoying and a little bit tedious or was it more of a, a badge of honor for you kind of amongst the squad and within your sense of personal accomplishment um, when, in terms of personal accomplishment, it, I, I would say making the boat ranked as highly as anything I've done because I hadn't raced for 15 years and I wasn't the, the first name on the, on the sheet by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, and the reality is that you, I left at one level and, and the sport moves on and you don't move on with it. And so I had to fight really hard to get into it. I think getting managing to 
to dig myself out of a pretty big hole and make the boat was um, you know, personally satisfying. I felt bad for the other guys that so much focus was on me being in it rather than um, you know, on the guys that deserved it. You know, a few of them are training for the Olympics in their various countries right now. And so I felt there was, there was too much focus on me, but at the same time, the opposing opponent of uh, the you know, Oxford didn't know that I wasn't the strongest in the boat. They're, they're still racing my record rather than the, the blokes the other guys had seen. And what I liked about it most was that you come into, they, you, your teammates treat you as you are rather than they don't treat you as, as a, you know, what, what, what medals you've got in your locker, what you have is the one you haven't got and that's the one you're, you're all chasing together. So I, I, I thought my only regret is that the attention was, was taken away from them a bit, but I think the, what I was able to bring, may not be able to bring my old physical stuff, but um, I'm sure James and Flip will, will say the same, is that I think there's an element of being streetwise that's quite useful in the competitive environment. And um, some of my mates that you know, from rugby who were, I was competing around the area when we won the Rugby World Cup and they a few of them carried on afterwards and and even though they were getting slightly older they would say well the more tired I get the more I shout at everyone else and that's generally was my policy as well. I'm, I'm really interested by what you say there about the attitudes to you both within your own boat and like the opposition attitudes um, because to go to go back to the rugby issue um, Edward got in touch with us on Twitter today to talk about how he used to, as a 19-year-old as a skinny kid, he used to hate coming to Cambridge to play against the pro second rows. Um, and from the outside looking in, it does seem a bit like you've got these two massive pro athletes. They're on the SNC in professional clubs and they've, and they've come straight into a student environment. And, you know, there is an aspect there of some, some poor undergrads here are being thrown to the lions a bit. Is that, does that slightly exaggerate your, I'll go to you on this one, Flip. Does that slightly exaggerate your experience of playing against students? I, th I think it does. I think um, with the modern day SNC, um, it was more me and James being scared of the 19 year old flying around and running everywhere and we having to keep up um, um, than the other way around. We definitely in, in preparation for the varsity match there was there was a we had a, we had a couple of very very tough encounters, uh, especially um, the Bodgers match just the week before the the varsity varsity match. Um, <clears throat> you know you had you had young guys and and older guys trying trying to to break every bone you have in your body and um, coming out of fifteen years of professional sport, um, we were both pretty much broken already, <laughs> and just and just trying to keep up. Um, but yeah, uh, trying to touch on 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 Cracknell's point there, you know that that chasing chasing that blues jacket, you know that's that's the ultimate goal um, from day one when you arrive, um, and by no means you are you are on that on that vast match list. You know there's a there's a whole selection process that goes through, and you have to get through all those matches, and you have to make sure you're in top form. Um, and you, you have to make sure that you can contribute to the other guys in the team to make sure they, they realize their dream um, mm -hmm. of, of winning this match. Because, um, you know, we might have played in World Cups and, and Super Rugby Finals and all those kind of things, you know, but we've never played in a varsity match. Um, and there's only a few people being able to say that. And there's only a few Blues Jackets going around. Um, so it stays, it stays a very, a very, a very um, special event, and it stays a uh, um, an awesome journey. You know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a team when we came on, and you know, it, it, it became your family. It became the, the, the guys that you went first to when you had questions, um, like the guys asking James how to post letter. You know, he was, he was the dad in the team. <laughs> yeah, talk to me a little about a little bit about that, um, James Horwell, because obviously Flip mentions there contributions on the pitch and I think you know anybody who watched Cambridge play throughout the season or if they only watched the varsity match it's, it's quite clear what you guys you guys brought I mean 
your professional experience led to, you know, set piece dominance and, you know, a lot of collision dominance around the fringes and things like that. But off the pitch, um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you saw your role with that, with that group of players. Yeah, look, I, I think it's, um, you know, uh, touching a little bit on, on what Flip said, you know, the important part, I guess, about rugby is it, it's, a, it's a sport that no, no one person is going to be able to win it on his own or two people will be able to do it. it. It is truly a team aspect. And I think that's what's something that's really great about the sport of rugby as a whole. And for us to be able to help, um, you know, and, that, and that's what we felt we tried to help as much as we could the guys achieve, uh, you know, what, you know, you realize how important it is to these guys when you're, when you're playing that how the importance of what it meant to win a varsity, you know, and Flip talks about getting the blues jacket when you, you know, you get presented it just before you play, but it was always about getting a winning blue and we hadn't had the, the most success previously. So the pressure in that sense was about us helping the team win because I know how much it meant not only to us, but particularly to the guys that have been there for a long time, particularly last year's varsity. Um, so 2019's varsity um, that there was a lot of guys leaving that had been there. So, you know, three, four, five years, and they wanted to leave on a, on a note that uh, they could remember. And that, that was uh, important to us to try and allow, you know, assist them. And, and by doing that, uh, it gives you a very, you know, rich sense of gratification about, you know, helping other people achieve what they wanted to do while you're sort of ticking a box that, you know, that you've had marked down that you wanted to win a varsity match as well. And I think, you know, when you touch on off the field, it, you know, I was probably a bit of the father figure. I think I was the only dad in the team, but, you know, I was probably old enough to be some of their dads if I, if um, anything. But look, it's about, I think the thing for me is that, you know, they get, was probably trying to play that calming influence a little bit um, for both Flip and I, because it is, you can see as it, as we got closer to the varsity match, there was a lot of, felt like a lot of tension, a lot of stress about these little things. And it was more about trying to allow guys to sort of relax and, and just sort of go through it, not so stressed and uptight that you're not going to be able to play the game. Because, we are, you know, we have some, some great, young players in our team and some guys, you know, that will, I think could, you know, have a future in playing professionally. And, you know, I think it was about sort of allowing them to give that belief. And, and if we were able to do that, that was, you know, probably a big, big thing that Flip and I were, were trying to do. So I think it's, um, that was probably the main thing, particularly leading up to the varsity. There was a, there was a couple of sessions where we probably, uh, got a little bit anxious you could tell the guys were you know were stressed and it was all becoming you know it was a big it was a big opportunity and it, and it is a big event and you know you're playing at Twickenham which is an amazing stadium um it was probably shame about the weather this year where it was pouring with rain so it probably impacted the the fan numbers but it is again it's live on tv you know it might be the only chance that some of these guys get to play at a stadium like that so they they want to you want to make it memorable and we were you know I, I feel as happy to to make the you know the the scenes in the change room afterwards, you know, where you can see that the, the pure joy on these guys' faces was, you know, what made it memorable to me. And just on that issue of making it memorable for for these guys, who for many of them, this is the pinnacle of their sporting career. Um, we know the boat race is supposed to be happening soon on April the fourth, but I guess to let's go to back to you, Flip. How disappointing will it be? if the varsity match doesn't go ahead because there's nothing concrete as far as I know, unless, unless you've got something else to tell us, but as far as I know, there's, um, there's nothing concrete in play yet. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if we don't have any, um, any great news. Unfortunately, there's, there's some talks that they, they want to have a, a, a version of the varsity match, um, whether it will be full contact rugby or not. That is the, that is the big question. Um, and yeah, I think you know we're not going to be the only guys who say we missed it. You know, we we you know we basically just missed getting out and kicking the ball around and and rubbing uh, someone else's face in the dirt a little bit. You know, that's the, <laughs> that's that's there was something that was part of our lives for very 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 long, and 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 you know suddenly it's it's gone. Um, and I think it 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 would definitely be a shame, you know. But you also you have to see it in a in a context of a lot of things, you know, it's not, it's not the worst thing that can happen. Um, I think the biggest thing that I can say it's missing is, is having that cohesion and having training with a team and, and having people around you that, you know, is that, you know, support, you, you know, that's the, I think that's the beauty of sport and 
that's why we all can be here tonight because you know sports creates create that community um, no matter what sport you do you know if you're a, a tennis player or a if you're rowing there's a there's a team around you there's a there's a little supporting ecosystem around you and um and that's what what makes sports beautiful um yeah nathan touched obviously a little bit on um the restrictions due to covid it's impossible to get through an interview without talking about it it's the elephant in the room really um james cracknell let's just um go to you on this one obviously the indoor championships rowing are meant to be coming up um, at the end of this month, I believe. Um, but obviously that alters the nature of the sport itself. You're not in a boat as a crew. Um, do you think that is going to have some sort of lasting impact on the sport or are people still holding out for the boat race this year? Uh, well, no, I think the... Uh, the the boat race, last year's boat race was you know, a sports stop, what, March 23rd, so it's sort of two weeks away from happening. And uh, it'll be, you know, I missed one Olympics. I got tonsillitis on the day of the opening ceremony in Atlanta. So I trained for four years and missed it. But there's always the next Olympics and the next Olympics. Whereas, um, as Flint was, was touching on, the, if you miss it, if you miss, if you're your last year at university and the boat race doesn't happen or the varsity match doesn't happen, you've gone. That's it. You, okay, you could join another course, but you move on with your life. So you've lost that window. And that's, that's going to have a real knock-on effect. I think it's really difficult to train for an event that you, you don't know whether it's going to happen or not. And that's the same with the guys and girls that are training to get ready for Tokyo, if, if it's going to happen, if it's not going to happen. And it's difficult for the coaching staff to set a program and you know, the you know, as the guys touch on that you're training with your mates and people you trust but it's you know especially ranks you just gotta do those horrible sessions on the rowing machine you're the one that's put your hand in the flame and if no one else is there to watch you you may back off on some of those sessions and ultimately that's going to cost you in the race so i think it will be a disaster if the race doesn't happen i think it for me it wouldn't have mattered if the crowds are there or not because there's going to be the only thing going to happen there's going to be no crowds but it's you're still racing one boat and yes there's not lots of people watching the Olympics which is very nice but um, the biggest pleasure is winning rather than than people um, than people watching so I think it'd be uh, a real a real shame for the guys who and the girls who put in so much effort alongside studying and also okay not so much this year but you know, the year I was there is that you're cutting out on your social life as well and basically you're just kind of rowing the academic work and then you sort of think okay I'll have some fun in the summer term but then that's catching up on the work you missed in the first two terms so it's a it's a big big commitment and I think for, for guys to go there at 18 19 20 I would have made the most of the sport, the social life, or the academics, I'd have ended up doing probably doing badly at all three. So I think it's a real shame they've made the commitment to not to not see it through. And in terms of you know what the guys are saying about the, the talent in the team, that they the thing that I was surprised at is that they, they sort of don't always have the belief in how good they are because they're sort of they're juggling, they're you know, phenomenally intelligent and they're also really good at sport. And they just kind of think, well, actually, he's on a good picture. No, you are this good. You have got a career in this if you want it, but also you can go and be an amazing architect. You can go and be a doctor, all the other things they're doing. So part of the, the thing I enjoyed most was actually just seeing their confidence in themselves grow over the year. And then the, the good thing about the boat race is that there's no heat, there's no semi-final, it's bang, straight in it. And if you could get it wrong on that day, the previous six months have been wasted. And that's what makes it, racing it hard and what what's makes coaching it hard um, because there's no practice. You've got to hit the ground running. It's not like a tournament where you've got, you play a pool match, then quarter semis final. You've got to get it right on that one day or you're, you're last. Yeah, we've, um, Nathan and I have, we've heard, various whispers um about the boat race this year um obviously nathan spoke to toms ransley last month that um both obviously you touched on the crowd aspect but 
it's one thing going from a limited amount of training straight into a boat race. I think as far as I'm aware, both camps um, are kind of in favour for having six weeks proper training before a boat race um, would go ahead this year. Um, could you shed any light on that or are we going to have to stay waiting a bit longer? Uh, I, I don't know whether I, I can shed any light on it. The, there definitely won't be any crowds there. You know, I spoke to the BBC about the, you know, their, the coverage we're planning is going to go ahead, but I can pretty much guarantee that if both universities were told, right, there's no practice, you turn on your own and then you come together and race on that day, you know, first time you've been in the boat together is on the way to the start. That's, I would take that over no racing. And, uh, you know, just back yourself that you're going to do it and, and just do your training right on your own and then back your skills on the day. I'd much rather have that than not race at all. No, I think a lot of people will probably be sharing, sharing your opinion on that. Any sport is, any sport is good sport um, at this stage in the game, I think. Um, and but obviously there's been a great amount of sacrifice and extra effort to get that sport to happen at the moment um and it was particularly apparent to me um kev in the kind of professional rugby game um over the christmas holidays i was doing some coverage with uh gloucester tigers um out in the west country and i wasn't even allowed um 20 meters you know side of the pitch I had to be so far away from the players um to just uh do my job is that something that you're glad you're not having to deal with at the moment um or would you just you know any rugby's rugby um like James was saying with rowing or actually is some stress just a bit too much uh yeah look I, I think you know I've still got a lot of friends that are, that are playing professional rugby uh in that sense and it's uh I think without the fans is probably not as you know, particularly a sport like rugby that's very emotive. You know, there's a lot of uh, passion shown by by players and it is quite an emotional game because you need to get up. It's a very physical, confrontational game. So you need to, you know, emotion plays a big, big part of, in, in the result. And, you know, talking to a lot of guys that are playing in front of empty, empty stands to say this, it's not the same. Um, you know, I watch some of the pro rugby now and, sort of sometimes think thank god i'm not playing that anymore um because i think my body's sore enough when i wake up out of bed on you i remember how sore it used to get trying to get out of bed on a on a sunday morning after a saturday match but um yeah look it, it's such a it's great i think you know as a fan for me now to to watch because it sort of it changes up what i can actually sort of dissect what my weekend is to my weekday because there's actually rugby on that i can watch other than that you know most days are the same um but look i think the the situation you know i'd love to see community rugby get back out there but in the nature of the sport that it is it, it's you know it's close contact it's probably the worst thing for what covid you know people say that covid in spreading the you know disease it's in close contact you're touching a lot of different people all the time and it, you know it's a, it's a contact sport so the, you know it's such a difficult uh one because you you know there's a there's a bigger picture here than just sport but but obviously sport plays such an important part of uh you know british culture uh you know i've lived here now for six years but particularly you know where i'm from australia you know australian culture it just wouldn't be the same without sport so i, I always sort of think back of what australia would be like if people won't be allowed to play community sports it's you know it's the lifeblood of almost our country and um i think it's such an important thing so the sooner we can get sport professional level uh sport back particularly rugby in in my sense but uh any any level sport back i think the sooner we can do that the better just for for people's well-being you know we understand what it does from a, from a physical point of view but also a mental point of view to just get out people out there exercising um and i think it's a, it's a really important part and hopefully we can uh you know in this country we can get things moving sooner rather than later james i don't know if you watched the uh i watched the island wales game at the weekend yeah and what i found strange was the anthems that they were socially distancing <laughs> in the anthems. i'm thinking yeah. in about a minute you're going to have your yeah. head <laughs> the sun don't shine next to him yeah you stand a bit closer 
Yeah, I don't understand that either. And in the premiership over here, you're not allowed to celebrate face to face, which I don't I mean, like they, they score a mall try where there's like 16 bodies all touching each other, but then he scores, you're not allowed to actually touch him. So, yeah, I, I think there's probably, uh, you know, box ticking in terms of what, what looks good. So then everyone standing there arm and arm might not look that good. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that, mate. It's, um, I thought that was very weird. And then the whole no celebration thing, it just sort of doesn't make sense to me. But they got to do what they got to do. Philip, in the spirit of talking about the importance of sport to the community, um, obviously, as our Springbok, you're the resident expert here. It looks like the Lions tour, if it goes ahead, is not going to take place in South Africa this summer, at least according to the rumours. How much of a blow is that to both South African rugby and the people of South Africa? Yeah, mate, I, I do hope that is a very big rumour. Um, and I, I obviously see that being spread around in the in the UK papers, and and hopefully, you know, obviously they're pushing to get it on on home soil. That that is that is what's happening. Um, I, I think you know the Lions tour is is something very unique. Um, you know, you as a country, you only get to play the Lions once every twelve years. Um, being you know preparing for that and having it in front of your home crowd is definitely something. You need um it's definitely something you need is also the crowd traveling to to come watch i think that's part of the big experience and it would be a great shame if um especially in, in a south african context um, a country that needs a bit of investment a, a bit of foreign investment a bit of exposure a bit of tourism um could pick up the economic economical situation at the moment um although it'd be a little bit just the exposure on 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 tv and and sponsorships and etc that would be a big thing and and i hope you know for me for me it would be better you know push it out one year rather than than play it somewhere else yeah that's that's a really that's the interesting thing because what i've read or heard at least and again obviously like you said this might just be uk papers push peddling a certain narrative um the idea of pushing it back a year seems to be a non-negotiable for for the for the for the unions because of its proximity to the 2023 World Cup, um, James Horwell, you obviously played against the Lions in 2013. You captained against them. Um, one of the defining images for me was uh, following the second test. You're in Melbourne. You're there crying your eyes out. So you you definitely know all about the the importance of the Lions tour. Um, is that is that fair enough? Like that that logic that it can't be a year out from a World Cup. I, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, look, I, I, I'll back up what Flip said. The the importance of the Lions, you know, while you know living over here in the UK, I appreciate how big how big it's been. I was here when the the New Zealand one went, and and it is huge. The importance to the to the nations that they they visit is 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 big because it's once every twelve years. I think only in Australia we've only had one player play against the Lions twice. So it's literally you've got one shot in your career to play against them, and if it falls in that window. You're lucky enough to be there. You know, it's a, it's a huge occasion. You know, we had 30,000 British and Irish fans come down to Australia. And it, you know, the, the whole six weeks they were out there was um, as good an experience I've had with rugby, uh, you know, anywhere in the world with the, the support that they generate for their team. Uh, not only the, the test matches, but the provincial matches are probably some, of the, some, some great memories for me. But look, I think the rugby calendar at the moment is, is very congested. Um, now, rightly or wrongly, from a purely rugby sense, that it's very cyclical. It's it's every four years, and the importance is put on the World Cup. Now, I don't know if that's the right thing. You know, teams plan for a World Cup four years out, so they start blooding new players and trying to get people, you know, which we're seeing now in in the Six Nations to prepare for the World Cup, so they can try and peak then. Now, um, yeah, from what I've heard, I, I've heard the same from you is that they're talking about it not being able to be pushed for whatever reason that is due to the, the home unions uh, with the stress that it puts on the players, particularly up here with the, with the premiership, uh, you know, you play a full season, then they go straight into a lion series, which gives, you know, another, they get a month lead in. I think last time they, they played the final and then they're on the plane on the Monday, they were gone for eight weeks, came back, had three weeks off and then started again. And the, the rate of injury for players after a lion series there, I read some stats. There is a there is a higher chance of serious injury, so you know being out for longer than a couple of weeks post a line series than there are, um, you know, with a normal lead in. And I think that's what's probably spooking the home unions if they get you know uh, an England have a Maro Atoji 
unfortunately goes on the, the delay it goes on line series and then blows his knee out after the line series misses the world cup lead in you know that that's that, they'll have a big impact on the way they perform at the world cup it's i mean it's interesting how the um thinking back to 2003 and and what we did is that uh, the guys felt that their biggest a big part of them winning the World Cup was when they went, when they beat New Zealand at home when you, when the All Blacks were and they're down to thirteen and held the All Blacks out and beat them down there. But that gave them the confidence that right we can beat the Southern Hemisphere teams on the road. And I, I imagine part of their concern is that with the four home nations preparing for Alliance Tour, it gives. The All Blacks and the and the Aussies extra time to play for their teams, and it actually handicaps the, the 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 Northern Hemisphere teams more, apart from the French. But no one likes them anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that. I think the 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 the, uh, the amount of stakeholders involved in professional rugby now, with all the different leagues. You know, as you said, you've got the French league, the 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 Premiership, the Pro 14, the Southern Hemisphere leagues. You know, everyone needs to sort of be on the same page, and everyone sort of you know, after COVID, probably worrying about their own backyard a little bit now that they've had no fans, so the revenues are down. Um, but yeah, look, I'd like to see it go ahead properly, um, you know, particularly for South Africa. You know, we were lucky enough to, to tour South Africa with, with you know, playing with the Reds and, and Australia, and it's a fantastic country and they love their rugby. And um, it would be a real shame that it, if it didn't go ahead in South Africa. So I think um, hopefully it can and hopefully with fans, but I don't know when that's going to be and uh, smarter people than me are going to be able to make that call. It's funny you say, you know, you, you don't like, no one likes the French. I'm pretty sure Flip likes them after, uh, after <laughs> quite a bit of time. <laughs> I don't know Maybe. if he does actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, could be critical, but they're doing, they're doing very well at the moment. Um, okay. They're doing very well. Um, yeah. Flip, I'll, I'll come to you for the next question. And this is, this is quite an important topic and it's our own fault here for maybe losing track of time a little bit. Um, so I hope we don't get cut off, but, um, James Horwell spoke about injuries there and about alongside the Lions the other big piece of news not just in rugby but in the sporting world has been the, the Steve Thompson um, lawsuit against uh, against I think I can't remember if it's against World Rugby or the or the RFU but either way um, because of injuries that he sustained to his head over the course of his career and the very unfortunate revelation that he can't remember winning a World Cup um, obviously you're in the same environment are you at all concerned for your own safety or do you think that you played in a later era that was much more safety conscious about the head? Look, it, it is a very, it's a great topic and a great topic of discussion. And, um, and I think history has told us, you know, with studies being done in the NFL, that it is a, is a topic that we have to be aware of. Um, and I myself did have a couple of injuries in my life, which, which, you know, make you, make you realize how, you know, how sensitive your head is and how easy you get injured and how, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very important topic and, you know, who's right and who's wrong. I don't want to get into that. And I, I'm happy that they're raising awareness, um, especially for the younger players play, playing now and, um, and taking care and, and, and making sure safety is, is, is of importance. Um, again, you know, you don't, you don't want to get into a, a a political uh, tug of war of saying, you know, this needs to be done and that needs to be done and people need to be, be shuttered out, you know, not to talk too much. You know, you, you want the discussion to happen and, and you want people to be, to be taken care of. Um, I think, I think that is the most important thing. Uh, I want to yeah. give some time to James as well to yeah. address. Yeah. No, I, I would just sort of add to what for this. I think that the, the strides that the game has made from when I started playing uh, professionally to what it was when I finished, which was, 2019 and even further now is you know the difference is is quite stark the acknowledgement and the understanding like it you know i think the head is something that we're not we don't have a full understanding of uh completely of of what the the effects are but acknowledging that there's some parameters in place i think has been really important and they've been brought in and becoming stricter and stricter and i think the important thing is a lot of it has been taken out of the player's hands because as a as a professional athlete or as a competitive person you want to play you want to play all the time and that's what you want to do it's part of it's ingrained in you rightly or wrongly and I think the important thing is taking it out of the players hands and saying no 
you these are the parameters. If you don't hit them, or if we make a call, we we override your decision, and that that's final. And I think that's the most important thing. Um, and but as Flip said, we're still learning about it. Um, and look, something that I think that you know, I think the game is going in the right way, but there's still plenty to learn and plenty to understand. Thank you, um, James. Um, and James Cracknell, I know you um, mentioned a little bit earlier on in the chat about um, the accident that you suffered um, when you were cycling across America. Um, and you've since been, you've done some amazing work on advocacy um, for wearing bike helmets um, and raising awareness um, about brain injury. Um, Within that debate within sports, um, do, how do you feel on how it's kind of spoken about and do you think it really needs to be addressed wider um, within the media and sporting culture? Um, well, I think the, the guys touched on it. I think that if you ask a, you know, a player in any sport with an injury, are you okay to carry on? They're going to go, yeah, because first and foremost, they're competitive. So it does need to be taken out of their hands and... I think that's where the governing bodies need to almost have it taken away from their hands because they're, the questions are whether they're putting or the clubs, they're putting the, the players at risk. Um, but I don't know enough about, about those sorts of sports. I think it's, you, know, you touched on cycling helmets and, and Australia have had it, you know, you have to, it's law to wear a cycling helmet there. Um, it's not here and there's questions, should you make it legal or not? I know from my experience that you know, if I hadn't been wearing a bike helmet, I'd have been dead because the, the fuel truck when we hit the back of my helmet and without that it would have it would have killed me and people you know still we still only have a 30 percent rate of people wearing them and a lot of the reason why people don't is that why it's freedom of choice you know i don't care what happens to me i don't want to wear one and all i know is that you know my parents got the call saying you've got to come over to america we don't know what's going to happen over the next 24 hours is that you may not care about yourself, but there are a hell of a lot of people who, who care about you. And just take COVID as a, a fine example in that there's been you know, we horribly hit 100,000 deaths in this country uh, a couple of weeks ago. And for every one person's died, there's nine significant others that are hugely affected and haven't been able to say goodbye more and go to a funeral. And so that's a million people, not 100,000. That's the same if you have a head injury, it's not just you that gets affected, it's your family, it's your friends, it's your work colleagues, it's your kids, it's your dad. You know, so it needs to be taken out of the players' hands and out of the governing body's hands, I think. Yeah, that's interesting you say, you all touched on out of the players' hands. I mean, um, I was obviously watching the, the Ireland-Wales game on the weekend, um, if my accent didn't give it away, I'm a big Ireland fan, and uh, seeing Johnny Sexton's reaction to being told he, he had to come off was uh, people laughed at it, but at the same time, it's not something to laugh at. His his anger and annoyance there, it's, it doesn't doesn't matter that he's annoyed. Um, he, need, he needed to be taken off after getting whacked in the head there. So you're right. Um, and it's interesting seeing that you say it needs to be taken out of governing bodies' hands as well. I suppose that's that's why we have, say, in rugby, we've got the the independent doctors who do the head injury assessments. Um, but yeah, thank, thank you very much, guys. That, that Those are some really important points there. And hopefully this conversation about the head in all sport, not just rugby, continues. Um, to end on somewhat of a lighter note, um, Flip, I'm going to come to you here because you have some experience with this. Um, we all, I'm sure many of us saw the viral clip from the French Pro D2 um, a couple of weeks ago of the Fijian player getting sent off for lifting up the referee. He got banned for six weeks for that, but you only got banned four weeks for pushing a referee out of the way. What's going on there? Yeah, referees are a bit sensitive, especially in France, even more. Um, no, 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 I'm joking. Um, it, you know, it, 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 there, there needs to stay that respect level between a player and a referee. Um, and then, you know, surely the guy got a little bit excited. You know, if he, if he just chose the guy next to him, I think he saw it was a prop, so he didn't want to risk trying to pick him up. Um, so um, yeah, I, I, I do. I, you have to agree with the punishment. There needs to be a level of respect to to senior players, and we don't want anyone, you know, going around high fiving referees and doing whatever they want. So it's probably the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, six weeks that seemed a little bit excessive. I remember seeing your one. I thought four weeks was excessive. Yeah, yeah. Lack, lack, lack of consistency. Which is worse? Which is worse? Pushing 
a referee or lifting up in the air. Anyway, another, <laughs> conversation, another conversation for another day. Um, that is all we have time for, unfortunately. Um, that hour just absolutely flew by. But some really good stuff there, um, guys. On behalf of myself and Charlotte, uh, thank you to James Horwell, Flip Van der Merwe and James Cracknell for joining us tonight and having a really good chat about professional sport and the varsity match um, at Oxbridge, as well as a host of other very important topics. Um, thank you also to the Cambridge Union for allowing myself and Charlotte to host tonight. We're not usually we're not we are not usual union hosts. We are from the, the Cambridge Bluebird, which is um, your one stop for all things uh, Cambridge University sport. Um, so thank you very much to everyone for joining us and um, enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank, thank you, you very much, guys. GDBO. GDBO indeed. Thank you for listening to The Lion's Den. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow The Bluebird on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to keep up to date with the world of Cambridge sport.